Wow, country music at Lakeside. Yeah. Woo. I'll tell you, it said that song had one message. It's not about me, it's all about you. That's for sure. That's for sure. I'm glad we did it today. It's a great song. Really kind of fits uh, what I'm going to talk about in just a few moments. And if you love country music, how many of you really like country music? Big cheer. Big cheer. Yeah. Two weeks from now, two weeks from now, as we open the service, the closing uh, message of this series, we're going to do one of them Southern country songs and you're going to love it. So you don't want to be late. You never want to be late, but you don't want to be late that week because we're launching the service and that's what it's going to be all about. Secondly, we need to give a big thank you to one group of people here today. And that's those men and women in the parking lot today. Let's give them a... I'm so incredibly happy that God called me to teach and not to work the parking lot. So uh, I'm sure you are as well. Well, we're on this journey. We're week three of a five-week journey. And we've been examining three undeniable realities that are found partly in Psalm 34, but mainly found in Psalm 90 when David writes uh, you know, about life. And, and what it's really all about. And he boils it really down into three undeniable realities that all of us have been thinking about over the last three weeks. Here they are. Life's too short. It goes by quickly. And the end is unpredictable. Life is short. It really is. When you think, even if you live 80, 90 years, it's pretty short. It goes by incredibly quickly. And many of us know that to be true. And some of us know because of our reality and people in our world that we love, the end can be unpredictable. And because of these realities, we've been looking at this one clarifying, this one key defining question, and it is that, if I only had one year to live, if I only had one year to live, how would I live life differently? If this clock is ticking down and it is the number of days and the number of hours, the number of minutes and the number of seconds that I have left in my life, when it hits zero, what things would I have done different between now and then that I might not otherwise do if I feel like I have lots of time? I mean, how would that question affect how I use my time? The things I say yes to and no to and focus on. The things that are important, the priorities, the relationship. How would it affect those key areas of my life if I knew that to be true? And as I said, the reason that we're asking this question, it is not. It is not because we want to be kind of morbid and think about our death. But we realize that when we ask these kind of questions and let them be an umbrella over our thinking and looking at over the areas of our lives, we're better equipped to live life to the fullest in the time we have left, where we will make fewer mistakes. And when we do get to the end, there will be few or no regrets. I think that too many people get to the end of their lives and they said, I made this choice. Why didn't I make that choice? I did this when I should have done that. And they get filled with regret. And that's what we're trying to minimize here. Living lives that are free from regret. Now, as I said in the welcome, when I hardly had any breath, when I said in the welcome is that if there is an area that brings the greatest regret in the lives of so many people, it is in the area of relationships. It is in the area of love, how we love, who we love, the way we love. And if I only had one year to live, I think I need to ask 
a big question, and that is, how would I do my relationships differently? How would I love differently if I only had one year to live? A few years ago, I, I did the funeral for a guy who was in his late 80s. He didn't come to Lakeside. They just had somebody I was connected with asked me to do the funeral. And I remember that funeral and it was kind of a, it was, uh, uh, there was grief in it, but it was such a celebration of this man's life and his son and his grandson got up and they shared about his life and they did this chronology of who he was and what he did and what he accomplished and how he interacted and impacted and influenced their lives. And then they did that big risky thing and they had this open mic deal and said anybody who wanted to share about this man's life could come to the mic. And I wondered, will anybody come and what will they say? And more than a dozen people came to the mic and if they all shared something that was fairly similar and if I was to boil it down or to summarize what they say, it would be this. This man, for most of his life, in fact, all of his life, he loved well. He loved the people he was close to. He loved the people in his relational circle. He loved people he didn't even really know all that well. And as I thought about that, and as I was sitting there that day, I thought to myself, that's what I would want my eulogy to sound like. You know, sometimes I think about that. Sometimes I think about my funeral. You know, it's kind of morbid, but I think about it. You know, who would come, if anybody? Where would it be? Who would do it? What suit would I wear? Sue would pick that out. You know, I just kind of ask those kind of questions. What will my funeral be like? And then I think about my eulogy. And I really do wonder what might people say about me when life is all over? And would one of those things that they would say about me is that he loved well? And sometimes that gives you know me these waves of fear because I wonder, have I lived in such a way and loved in such a way that the majority of people who knew me well would say he loved well? He loved well. You see, I believe when we get to the end of our lives, what will be the biggest measuring stick of how we lived our lives will be how well we loved during our lives. Love will be the measuring stick. But we don't want to just wait to the end and wonder how we did. I think if we begin to look at how we love now and we could improve it and and, and be better at it now, I think we could have a quality of life now and we could leave this world with few or no regrets. John Townsend, one of the best books on the subject of love is called Loving People. And he says this in this book. He says, how we operate as loving people and who we love will make a difference in the course of our lives and also at the end of our lives. And I think he's he's right on. It will affect how we live life and it will affect how we end our lives. And I think who we love and the way we love matters more than anything else, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Isn't the way we love and who we love, doesn't it matter more? I think it does. And if I only had one year to live, I think it just might change the way I love. And the question I've asked in preparation this week is, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? Wouldn't it make me love those who are closest to me a greater priority? Because I don't think any of us want to get to the end of our lives and look back and say, I wish I had of loved better. Or we don't want to be saddened by the missed opportunities that we had to love well, especially those who are close to us. I don't know about you, but what's true about me is there are times I look at my life and I desire to raise the love bar. I want to be able to love better. 
And I know that at the end of my life, what is going to matter the most, what my life is going to be measured by, what your life is going to be measured by, what will matter the most to you at the end of your life is how you loved. It won't matter how successful you are, how much money you made, what it won't, you know, you know, what possessions you have or what fame or reputation you've developed. It doesn't matter about what accomplishments or activities or pleasures you pursued. Nothing else matters. If you made a list of everything that matters, guaranteed at the end of your life, what matters the most is how well you loved. We know it's to be true. And I think that we can look through the pages of history and there are people that we would applaud as being great successes, people who made a difference. We would admire those who, you know, enjoyed the applause and the approval of others. And we would go, wow, what a great figure in history. And I think if the truth be told and we looked at their lives and had a chance to sit down with them, I think many of them would honestly admit that they would trade everything that they achieved and accomplished and had at the end of their lives They would trade it all away to minimize the regrets they had because some of them didn't love well. Because at the end of our lives, all that really matters is how well did we love. And yet at times, knowing how important it is, knowing I'm going to be measured by it, knowing I want it to be spoken of at my eulogy, all those being true. I don't know about you, but for me, I can get caught up in work and demands and responsibilities. And some of you are raising kids and some of you are pursuing careers and some of you are building businesses. And those are all good things. They're all good things. But so often we're doing so much of that that we lose our opportunity or we, we, we fail in our responsibility or we, we have a diminished capacity to love others. We just do. And I know if, I asked that question. If I only had one year to live, what would I do differently? I think at the top of the list, for me anyway, this is the one that would be the most important. How well did I love? But I don't want to get to the end and find out. It's not just about having a a regret-free life at the end. I know that my life can be richer and fuller and better and more alive now if I can raise the bar now. So the question I keep asking is, Why do I wait? I mean, when you think of the reasons we should love and the benefits of loving, right? I mean, when you, you know, you have better and stronger relationships if you love well. When you love well, you get loved well in return most often. We have a greater capacity and opportunity for intimacy, which we all want and desire. When we love well, we have freedom from past unhealthy relationships when we didn't love well or they didn't love us well. It provides a greater joy and happiness, right? The key moments of life, the positive key moments in life are often relational and often tied in with how we love or how we are loved. I think it can bring personal healing, but I think one of the most important benefits or reasons I want to love well, not just not to have regrets, but I know that the way I love ripples into the lives of others and I want the people who are closest to me, I want them to love well as I love well. And I want to have that influence and I want to have that impact. And I think that's one of the keys and that's one of the reasons. And I know there are many other reasons. And if we love well, we enjoy those benefits. And if we don't love well, we don't. It's just the truth. And God has wired each of us. He has wired every one of us to love well. In fact, I think that we've all been wired to this little phrase, to love and be loved, to experience love, to share love. 
We need love, but we need to be able to give it away as well. I think we've all been wired for that. Now, we express it differently. That's what the whole love language is, is all about. We all give and receive love a little differently. But what I think is true of me, I think might be true of you, that just maybe you want to love more fully, more completely, the way you love others. Maybe you're just like me. You're not fully content in the way that you love and you want to do it differently. And if you only had one year to love, you would. So why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? Now, some of us, maybe, you know, you're out here today and you just haven't been loved well. You've been wounded or abused or betrayed or walked out on. You just haven't been loved well. And sometimes you feel like it's so hard to love others. Or maybe in the home you grew up, there weren't great models of love. Maybe there weren't those demonstrations of what love really is and you find it hard to love well. And for those of you who have been wounded by love or not seeing great models of love, I think some ask the question and wonder, do I go through the rest of my life with this sort of love limp that I can never walk free, that I can never love better? See, I think all of us desire it. I think all of us can achieve it. And the Bible's really clear that there is a pathway that you and I can walk to love better. Can love better. And I think that all of us want to know how. How can I love better? How by the end of my life will people say, he, she loved well? Well, it's really by answering two questions. But the first is the big one. Until we get some clarity over the confusion of this question, I don't think we're going to have a hope of getting it right. You know what the question is? Real simple. What is love? What is love? I think that in our culture, there are the two most confusing things are happiness and love. There's all sorts of confusion about what happiness is and how we find it. And I think there's all sorts of confusion about what love is and how we love others well. I think there's lots of it. And I don't think we have this clear, sort of concise uh, definition that we will all agree on. And I think if we had a thousand people this morning and I handed out a little card and said, write on that card what you think love is. Some of you would say it's emotion. Some of you would say it's passion. Some would say it's feelings. On the other side, some of you would say it's actions and it's behaviors. Some of you would say it's romantic. Some of you would say it's an infatuation. Some of you would say it's attraction or passion. Some of you would say it's emotional intimacy or oneness. Others would say, no, it's what you do for someone. It's the actions of love. And I think that there is a confusion over what love really is. And I think that's why some of us struggle loving because we just don't know what it is. And again, I came across this definition of love in John Townsend's book, Loving People. And I kind of ran it through a grid and says, does the Bible confirm this? And when I look at people who love well, does that, does that confirm it as well? And I, I really believe it does. And here's the definition in, in Townsend's book. This is what he says. Love is, I love this, simply seeking and doing what is best for another. Love is simply seeking to and doing what is best for another. And Townsend goes on and says this, right after he says that. When we love someone... We bend our hearts and minds and energies towards the betterment of that someone or someone else. This is what loving people do. It involves the whole person. It is ongoing and it is intentional. I love that phrase. And I said, okay, I need to put that to the test to see, is it valid? And he talks about love involving the whole person. And I, there's something so important about that, right? It's not just loving with actions. It's loving with emotion. 
But it's not just loving with emotion, it's loving with action. It's not just good intentions, it's actions. It's not just attitudes, it's behaviors. It's the whole being. And Jesus said that we were to love God, how? With all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. I've heard sermons where they dissect those down to four individual things. They are not four individual things. In the first century, that was a common phrase that was said, the whole person. He says, love God with your whole person. And then he says, love others as you love yourself. And I think it's, it's, that, it's the same kind of love that we express to one another with the whole person. And I think where the definition comes is some of us have boiled love down to just feelings so we can fall in love and we can fall out of love. Others, we, we make love actions, but there is no feelings or there is no emotion behind the actions and we're just going through the motions. Love is more than the right words, but it's more than doing the right things. It's more than the right feelings and it's more than the right intentions. Love is something that we focus on another person. We seek and focus on another person for their best, as he says here, for their betterment. And it in, in, encompasses the whole being, all of us, the whole person. Now, I think the action side or the behavior side must be very present because it's the only way another person really knows we love them. I mean, we all know this to be true. You do. If I compare two people, one who has all the right emotions of love and says the words, I love you, but every action that they, you know, show you or demonstrate are unloving actions. And you compare that to the person who hardly says, I love you and doesn't have much emotion behind those words, but they demonstrate over and over enormous actions of love. Who loves you the most? You know, it's the person with the actions. We all venture down that road. We know that to be true. And my parents never really said, I love you a lot. They're just not wired that way. It's their heritage, how they were brought up and all those kind of things. But every action they did, I know there was love behind it. And I know I was loved. You see, you can't force an emotion. You can't force yourself to fall in love with someone. That's why love can't be leaning on the emotion side. But there are actions that you and I can do that will create the emotion. The emotion might create the action. It might not. You can't force the emotion though. There's actions that force it. And I think it's asking this question on every interaction that we have with people we love, people in our relational circle. It's this question. What does love require of me? What does love require? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to demonstrate love? And the Bible actually confirms this definition that we were looking at. Now, actually, I think Townsend wrote the definition based on the Bible. I'd rather go that way. But when you look at the words in the Bible that talk about love, there's the word in the Old Testament, hesed, in the New Testament, agape. There are the, the key words about how God loves us and how he wants us to love one another. And those words are rich and they're deep and they're full and they describe who God is. And the Bible says that God doesn't just love, but God is love. He is the essence of love and this is the way he loves us. And as I said on Christmas Eve, these words, hesed and agape, they describe a depth of love, a fullness of love, less about emotion, has emotion, but more about action. It's about a deliberate choice to love, even though love might not be returned. It's love with no strings attached, initiated by one person who focused is not being loved in return. Their focus is simply loving. That's what those words mean. And that's kind of the definition that Townsend uses. It's a deep, full, rich love 
demonstrated by actions. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love towards us in this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave an action. It says in 1 John, read over and over, it says, God loves you. And then he says he gave his son as a sacrifice of atonement. God's love is demonstrated in action for our betterment, for our good. Now, there's a couple of scriptures that I want to look at real briefly. This is what's called the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, one day, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I, you know, I can get up and, you know, speak wonderfully in front of a group, but I have not love, I'm just a bunch of noise. It says, if I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, he's talking about spiritual mysteries here, and I have knowledge, he's talking about, you know, spiritual knowledge. If I have this head full of spiritual knowledge, and I have faith that can even move mountains. But he says, if I have not love, I'm nothing. It means squat. That's what the Greek means. No, I just made that up. If I give all I possess to the poor, if, I, if I'm generous and I surrender my body to the flames, if I'm martyred, I can do all those great things. But if I don't have love, it's useless. It, it's, it's of no good. So he's saying, I have to have the heart behind the actions. That's what he's saying. The right heart. An attitude has to be behind the behaviors. On the other side, he gives us this description of love. His love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. does not boast. It is not proud, not rude, self-seeking, not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Uh, love never fails. Anything you notice about all those words in the definition of love, what are they? They're all actions. And what are they actions for? The good of somebody else. And the one I think is key in all of that is love is not self-seeking. Because I think when love gets toxic and love goes bad and love gets skewed and love hurts and love wounds is when we love someone else, not because they are the object of our love, but because we want something from them. We want something in return. Maybe it's love, maybe it's something else. Paul says in another section, he says this, Philippians 2, 1 to 4. He's not saying if you have, he's, he's kind of, it's a, it's a literary technique, kind of he's convinced they do have it because they're, they're, they're genuine followers of Jesus. So he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from what? His, Christ's love, any fellowship with the Spirit. So he's, you know, he's kind of just putting it all together there. Any tenderness and compassion. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having what? The same love. The same love is whose love? His love, Christ's love. And then he goes on and he tells us tells us what that love looks like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That's love. Each of you should not should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. He said it's not selfish ambition, but it's humility. It's the others are considered are better. We look at the interests of others. You notice it's others focused. Real love is others focused. It's not what we get in return. A couple of chapters over from this, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives us this great picture of what love really looks like. He says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, the community of faith, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to what? Present her to himself as a radiant church without stain and wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. What is he looking for? He gave his life sacrificially out of love for what? Our betterment. That's what love is. That's what the Bible says love is. Now, let me say a couple of things that are really important. And then we'll get real practical of how this plays out in our lives, okay? Number one thing I want to say 
You want to be a more loving person towards others? You need to raise the love bar towards God. You really do. We need to deepen our love for God. You see, the motivation and the reason behind spiritual growth and discipleship is measured by how well we love others. And if you are doing discipleship to know more Bible or to learn more verses or whatever you're growing in for whatever reason, to be some super saint, I have no idea. But you are not becoming more in love with God and therefore more in love with others. Your discipleship is a waste of time. And Jesus told us that. He said, a new commandment I give to you. You will love one another as I have loved you. you and then he says these words, you must, must love one another. And he says, by this what? Everyone will know what? You're my disciples. See, discipleship and the measuring of it is how well we love others. Nothing else is the measuring stick. How do we love God? How do we love others? And it is impossible to love others well until you love God in a greater way. I know some of you, that's strange and loving God and trying to figure who God is. And I get that. Just keep working at it. Keep asking your questions. Keep checking it out. But we need to love God with our complete and whole being if we ever have a hope of loving others better. Secondly, some of you need to deal with the brokenness, maybe where you've been wounded by love. You've got to deal with that, get some help. You know, Celebrate Recovery can help you with that. There's other counselors that can help you with that because you got to deal with that to love better thirdly some of us just get to get over the idea that a person has to be worthy of our love or you know they have to be lovable before we can love them oh they're not all that lovable i can't love them you know what jesus said love your enemies and he demonstrated this in romans 5 verse 8 when he says um you know but god demonstrated his love for us that while we are still sinners christ died for us right we were enemies we're enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. And we don't have to wait till someone is lovable. In fact, I think you know you're growing in your ability to love when you love those who are hard to love. Another measuring stick. And then lastly, just know this is a lifelong process. You want to raise the bar? Do not shoot for the, you know, you're not in the end zone looking to the other end zone to do that by next week. You might get the ball out to the one yard line if you understand football language. And since it's, we're in the playoffs, we have to understand that. So, that's a brief overview of love. You know what I want to say a couple of things, though? Far, I just want to, you know, just say a couple of things is that we have to get this definition clear. I just want to say this before we move forward. Got to get this one clear. Because you, you can't start the actions or doing what love requires until you really fully embrace what love is. So that's why I spent so much time on that. Now, what I want to do is talk about four practical ways that we can love well or love better. And it really comes from this verse, John 13, 1. It says, just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave. So he's on his way out. He's got limited time left, less than, you know, hours. Um, and it says, having loved his own. So he did love them. It wasn't that all of a sudden he went, oh yeah, I better love them. I haven't loved them yet. No, he loved them. But now in those last hours, he shows them the full extent of his love. He knows he's going and he raises the love bar. I love that. I love that. See, if I knew I had a year to, to live, I'd raise the love bar. I just would. I know I would. So why am I waiting? And I think there are four things that Jesus did. And as I read this, I've meditated on it. These are the four. Number one, he cher- it was more cherishing, cherishing than changing. He cherished more than tried to change. And if I had one year to live, I would spend more time doing that. This is really all about one word. It's about acceptance. It's about accepting others. And it's based on this verse. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. 
You see, far too often we spend more time focusing on someone else and what we want to change about them than what we want to cherish and accept and applaud about them. Ever notice that? I know some people who have the spiritual gift of a critical spirit. They got to. They just got to. And I often look at them after a while and feel that, you know, sometimes I feel their criticism and I say, if you could just say a couple of positive things once in a while, a little cherishing, a little applauding, a little appreciating, I think it'd go a long way. And I think sometimes we get that way. We have to be so careful. It's so much a desire to have people change. And that's not a bad thing. I, I, the people I love, I want them to change. I want them to grow. I want them to mature. I want them to experience life to the fullest. Yeah, I want that. And that's my desire, but it's, it can't be my demand. I can't demand that they change. I can't force it. I just can't. Yeah, it's good to desire positive change for others, but, but it's not our right to demand it. And instead of focusing on what's wrong, we need to cherish what is right. We really do. Imagine we spend more time doing that. You see, when you try to force someone to change or want them to change, for whatever reason, and you're kind of pushing it and controlling it, manipulating it, I'm telling you right now, there will be resistance and resentment and at best, half-hearted compliance. And too often, let's just be honest, maybe it's just me, but too often, let's be honest, sometimes I want people to change, not for their good, but for me. It would make the relationship easier. They'd be easier to live with. It would be easier, better. Whose good is it for? Mine. Let's be honest. We're friends. It's true. If I had a year to live, I would cherish the people I love way more than I do now. I know I would. So why am I waiting? Why am I waiting? You see, we... The antithesis to cherishing or accepting is forcing change, wanting change, pushing change. And it takes humility to cherish people because you have to admit, I got my junk too. And maybe I should just work on that and let them work on those and theirs. And that's, that, that's where we should be at. You see, our natural bent is to change someone. The supernatural bent is to cherish them. And you know what? I'm not real good at this one. My family's probably sitting over here. I won't look at them make me cry or them cry one or the other but sue heather Lindsay, and lauren you know what i haven't told them enough how talented they are because they are and how beautiful they are because they are and how special they are because they are and how unique they are and how great they are and how hardworking they are and how loving they are and how proud i am of them i best get the word fine out once in a while i know if i had one year to live i'd say that more so why am i waiting why am I waiting? When it comes to loving others, where are you? Cherishing end, change end. And where do you want to be? And why are you waiting? You know, our culture constantly forces people into a mold before they accept them. Why do we do the same thing? Why don't we cherish them and make that our choice? Next, we need to make things right. Make things right. Sounds like Mike Holmes, right? Make it right. This is all about forgiveness, the dreaded F word. It says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's how you have been loved by, dearly loved by God, clothe yourself, put on a new suit of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other at all. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Notice he doesn't say, forgive the easy ones, but, you know, grudge the big ones 
whatever's whatever. And then it says this, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Ooh, I was good up to that point. I think I could have worked on it. But now I have a model to follow. And he says, above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing forgiveness, except to say forgiveness at the base of what it means is to cancel a debt. And it's really giving up our right. It's giving up our right to punish those who've wounded us. And it is all about us being freed from their hold on us. And if I had one year to live, I'd start with forgiveness. I would make a list of the people who I have wounded and I have hurt and I'm offside with and I'd get together with them and I, I would say, would you forgive me? Whether they would or not, I'd still ask them. They don't. That's their problem. The people who have wounded me and hurt me and kind of slammed me and, you know, kind of did bad things to me. I think I'd make a list of them and go and say, I forgive you. Whether they ask for it or want it, who cares? Because I think forgiveness is so important. There's a little song that says these words. Well, it's still called today. Why don't we make it right before the days turn into night and tomorrow might be too late? If I had one year to live, I would not let this kind of stuff go unresolved because some of the greatest regrets of people when they get to the end of their lives is they held these grudges, made they took and they made mistakes into mountains. And grudges be, grow and resentment build. And they didn't talk for years and years and years. And they get to the end and they have this regrets and maybe they make it right, right at the end. But they missed out on so much all the way along. And we got this situation in our family right now. One of my siblings is kind of at odds with my mom and dad. And they've really, you know, talk about taking a mistake and make it into a mountain. Yeah, as long as they're not watching today, I can say that. Um, but they got these unresolved issues. And I just wish they would just sit down with my mom and dad and talk it out and sort it out. And my mom and dad have sort of, you know, handed the olive branch of peace in their direction. And there's been a few little things that have happened. But I just have this sense, one day, my sister's going to get the news. Mom died, dad died, and she is going to be racked with regret. I was a funeral director for 12 years, and the greatest guilt I saw anyone ever struggle with is when they didn't sort it out, they didn't make it right, and now it was too late. So is there someone you need to forgive? Now, I know there's fear. There's confusion about what it means. And, you know, sometimes we just don't know where to start. A lot of times it's just stubborn pride. Let's be honest. And maybe we need some help or take some steps. But maybe it's time before it's too late to free ourselves and to offer forgiveness. Third, it's being up close and personal. Up close and personal. I see this. Jesus does this. If you read John 13 to John 17, this is what this is all about. He's in this intimate moment with those who are closest to him. And we call this connecting. You might call it intimacy. Connecting is a word I like better just on the, because of the various levels of relationship. It's connecting. Relational connectedness. We'll come back to that one. Relational connectedness. And I read about Jesus and he gets close to those who are close to him. And it kind of gives us a picture of what this connecting, this intimacy looks like. It starts with availability. It's spending time together. And I'm convinced if I had one year to live, the people I love most, I'd spend more time with them. You would too. You know it to be true. And I've been a little more convicted these days that I've spent way too much time on the mission of the church and ministering to other people that I've not always had time and the capacity to be close enough to those I love the most. And I don't want to leave it 
till it's too late. I love when my kids come over and they have coffee or we, you know, just kind of hang out together and uh, we have lunch together. We do things. I just, those moments are becoming more important than ever. Maybe it's an age deal, but it is. If I had one year to live, I would do that better. So why am I waiting? Closeness is not just availability, but it's also vulnerability. It's, it's sharing our heart and our thoughts and our feelings and our hopes and our fears and our doubts and our anxieties and all the good stuff and all the negative. It's two hearts. It's hearts knitting themselves together, transferring feelings and thoughts and emotion. Not only are we to love and be loved, but we are to know and be known. That's what love is all about. It's taking the mask off and being real. Not only is it availability and vulnerability, but it's empathy. Jesus was so compassionate to those that he was leaving. And, and, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. And, you know, he talks about in me, you can have peace. And you just see these compassionate moments. Jesus connects with them and he gives them instruction, wisdom, guidance, and insight. Jesus expresses his commitment to them. Jesus enjoys and experiences those simple moments with them pass over together one more time it's about celebrating and crying and laughing and i think all that went on connection is about mutuality it's this way it's not one is better than the other or more important than the other it's sort of mutual it's about praying for one another. It's helping each other grow spiritually. Connecting is so critical. You read those chapters. Jesus connects so closely and he shows them the full extent of his love. I think this is a big one. We're wired for connecting. Depth of love. We're wired for intimacy. I don't know if I had one year to live. I'd do this better. Way better. So why am I waiting? Now, the last one, just a little, bang, a little bank shot because we've already talked a lot about it and it's this one. It's demonstrating love through actions. I've spent a lot of time talking about this, but I just want to kind of jump on it one more time in a, a very practical sense and in a very simple way. And I want to look at this whole idea of serving. I think that Jesus, you know, demonstrates it in many ways. He goes to the cross and dies for them. He demonstrated it huge, but he serves them. It serves them. And it says this of Jesus, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life in place of others. That's what it's about for their, their betterment. And when you look at chapter 13 and it says he shows them the full extent of his love, what does he do? But he, he, he takes off his outer garment and he grabs a towel and ties it around his waist like a servant and gets a big bowl of water. And he, he starts washing dirty, calloused feet, takes their sandals off, massages their feet, you know, kind of, you know, just serves them that way. And he says, I'm, I, you know, he knew who he was. There was no mistake. He knew who he was and what was going to happen. And he knew what authority he had. But he washes their feet. It's an act of service. And he said to them, I want you to do this for others. I want you to serve others as an act of love. Because as it, later on in this chapter, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Wash feet for one another as I've done it for you. He's, he's, he's talking about love. These, these things fit together. They're not two concepts that are just sort of miles apart because they're in the same chapter and it's all about the same conversation. Now, he's not talking about being a servant. He's not being a servant. He's talking about serving. It's not about waiting on people hand and foot. It's about choosing to serve them and show the actions of love. See, I know if I had one year to love, I would say, I love you, I love you, I love you so much more. But I would definitely show the actions of love so much more. Because at the end of the day, what will be remembered is not the words, it's the actions. 
When people stand up and they say this about you at the end of your life, it'll be about the actions related to love, how you did love, how you served in love. And I know I would do it much more. I would do it so much more if I had one year to live. So why am I waiting? I don't know about you if I had one year to live. I'd love better than I'm doing right now. I think I would cherish more. I think I would make things right more often. I'd, I, I would get the mistakes out of the way and not ever let them turn into to, to any kind of mountain. I know that I would be closer and, and more intimate and, and, and connected with the people I love the most. And I know that I would serve and share my love through action. So if life is short and it goes by quickly and the end is unpredictable, why am I waiting? I've asked myself that question a dozen times this week. Why am I waiting? What am I waiting for? What is getting in the way? See, Jesus knew it was time to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own, he showed them the full extent of his love. And he had limited time. He loved completely. He didn't wait. Am I willing to love completely and not wait? Because I know what it'll do. It will make my life better. From this day forward, I will make fewer mistakes. And at the end, I can leave this world with fewer no regrets. I think the saddest words at the end of somebody's life is, I wish I had of loved well. The sadder words is if someone stood up at their funeral and said, I wish they had of loved well. Neither has to be said if we say today, now, before it's too late, I will make it different. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your example of love, sacrificial to a cross on our behalf for our betterment. You demonstrated the definition of love. You sought and you, you know, and you did what was best for us. And it cost you enormously. And we give you thanks for the enormity of your love and how you demonstrated loving well to each one of us. And may we learn through your word and through the conviction of your spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, you are just kind of wrecking some people here going, I need to do this better. And then give them the courage to make a couple of steps, a couple of action steps, and that they will do it better so that they can love well. Because when we love well, we reflect who you are to those who we love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of our service today, we, it's one of those things that I love to do. It's one of those privileged things that I get to do. And that is, we are going to bring in uh, a number of new partners here at Lakeside. Just takes a moment, so hang in there. Don't run out the door. Especially using the cafe. Don't run out the door. Um, yeah, I know you do sometimes. I, yeah, caught you. Um, but we're going to bring in new partners today. And um, our partners at Lakeside, uh, they have to take uh, Discovering Lakeside. By the way, if you want to be a partner, know more about Lakeside. We're doing that on February the 9th. It's Saturday morning, and you can do that. So you can sign up. Uh, just a little plug for that. I teach it. It's three hours. And it's everything you ever wanted to know about Lakeside, but we're afraid to ask. And uh, so we do that. And then these people have done that and they've been interviewed by members of our leadership team just to confirm, you know, the application that they filled out. And now today they choose to publicly become partners at Lakeside. And partners are 
a reflection of what we think it is, not membership. Membership is paying something and getting something. We think partnership is a better reflection. So I'm going to invite these people, and I know a whole bunch of them aren't here today, but those who are here, I'm going to invite uh, them to come up. The, the members of our leadership team, come on. Yeah, yeah here they go. Um, all of them, uh, but one, and now let me just introduce those. Uh, I'll just read their names and they can come up. So we have Paula Evans, and I know Paula's not here. We have Kevin Lowry. I think I saw Kevin there. Well, we have Mel, uh, Melba Geraldo. Is Melba here? I'm not sure she is. She is. I'll have her come forward. Uh, uh, we have uh, Robert McGurr. I see Rob down here. Uh, Conrad Mwan. He is not here. He's in the Philippines visiting family. We have uh, Andrew Wheeler. Where did I? Did they come on stage yet? There they are. Oh, just Kim is here. She's representing Andrew as well. Kim's a new member of our staff. Guess what? She had no choice but to become a partner. Um, and then we have Cheryl and Lauren Caswell, and they're right here. So we have how many? We've got five of the ten here. And uh, what I just want to do, these are people who are now pledging that their commitment to being, you know, uh, key people here at, at Lakeside, and we're just glad you're part of our team. I know all of you have started to plug in and serve in different capacities and in great ways, and so we're glad to have you as part of our team. So let's just welcome our new partners. <laughs> kind of nerve-wracking standing up here, isn't it? I'm just going to pray for them, and then we're done. Father God, thank you for these people who have dedicated themselves uh, to the ministry here at Lakeside. They've said, we want to be part of what's going on. You can count on us. You know, we're with you. We're part of your team. And we just thank you for these partners. We thank you for their love for you first and foremost and their love for this church and their, their, their love for the mission and the values and the direction that we're going. And I know some of them have already made a significant impact either here or at Hope House and I, or at both. And I know they will continue to make a significant impact helping us fulfill our mission. So thank you for these gifts that we have as these new partners today. We just pray a, a prayer of blessing and dedication of them. And we pray all of these things in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks everybody. Have a great loving week. Thanks guys. There are, um, at the information.